What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will, big football storyline of the weekend, the Pro Bowl. No. No, 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 no. Just kidding. We're not going there today. Um, we've got an Auburn heavy pod coming up for everybody. We are going to get into all of that, I promise. We're going to bring in our good friend Cole Kubelik to make some sense of what's going on with everything on the planes with Brian Harson. He's also going to, by the way, talk a little bit of senior bowl stuff as well. Got into the faking injury subject. Um, everything Cole is always worth a listen. Um, and then we're going to be talking about student loans in figuring it out. But first, we, before we get to all that, like I said, we will. Okay. I wanted to give a shout out to our YouTube channel once again. Saturday Down South YouTube is cranking out videos right now. Tons and tons of videos going up. We're really ramping up our efforts there. Marler is heading up all of our video content. If you subscribe to our channel, you're gonna see stuff from this podcast, like some of the monologues that I do, some of the interviews that we do, uh, and more. Marler and I also doing weekly video uh, together. That's coming out Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays, pretty much just about whatever's going on in college football, 15, 20 minute video, pretty easy to be able to digest. Uh, Adam Spencer, as you know, great hoops content that's coming down the pipeline. Great time of year to get fully invested into hoops content. Dustin Schutte's offering insights on the Big Ten as well. We had a lot of people subscribe this past week, and obviously the more people subscribe, the more fun things that we can do over there, Saturday Down South YouTube channel. So if you have not, make sure that you subscribe to that Saturday Down South on YouTube. Okay. If you somehow haven't seen how crazy things have been at Auburn the last few days, kudos to you because you probably haven't spent much time on the internet. Will, is it even possible to be at this point? I almost, you texted me at like 10 a.m. on Friday in our conversation. <laughs> what, was, what was my response to you asking me if I had seen all this Harson stuff? You were like, buddy, I wish I could have avoided it or something like that. You were like, it was impossible to avoid it. Could avoid it if I tried. There we go. Was, yep. In about 12 hours, it got to that point. And even if you were up late on Thursday night to be able to see that stuff kind of break, and you're wondering how in the world we got to this point so quickly, which, I mean, we recorded last Thursday, last Thursday, yep. and we weren't having these same sort of conversations. It started with the Justin Hokinson bombshell report on Thursday night for on three that Harson's future was in question. It continued with Auburn players taking to social media to voice their frustration about Harson's treatment. And it continued with the ESPN piece that Chris Lowe wrote about Harson pushing back on the judgments made about his character being BS. And then on Monday, Auburn comes out with a statement all but telling us that they were searching for a way to fire Harson with cause to avoid that $18 million buyout because, hey, agreeing to pay it north of $40 million to get rid of coaches in consecutive off seasons probably isn't ideal and that's probably not the foundation for a championship. I'm a little out of breath. That is essentially how we got to this place. And that's basically the speed that we got to this place. And um, I'll let you kind of fill in the blank listener of this podcast of what you interpret to be this place because we are recording this at 3.30 on Monday afternoon, 3.30 Eastern time. And knowing our luck, Will, by the time people are listening to this, Brian Harson will no longer be Auburn's coach. TBD, TBD on that. You know what's crazy? We're at a point right now where him 
remaining Auburn's coach would actually be more bonkers than him being fired. <laughs> like we're, yes. we're at a point right now where it's like him and the Auburn administration are just in that Mexican standoff like we talked about last time, just staring at one another. And so it's like anything that happens from here is this place. You're in this place. Auburn fans, here we all are together in this place. At least this is a safe space where you could just kind of we're all, we're all, we've all been there. LSU was in this place a couple of months ago. So, uh, I'd argue this place is a little different. Just a little different. It's similar but different. At this point, based on the way that things have played out and the obvious factors that seem to be outside of Harson's control at this point, I would be surprised if he were Auburn's coach in 2022. Mm-hmm. It is at that point. And so I want to offer some perspective on this because, Will, is it safe to say that when we recorded last Thursday, the idea of Harson being fired before year two was totally off the radar, even if we had highlighted his shortcomings and said, look, we we could be talking about whether or not he gets a year three and whether or not they're going to pay this $15 million buyout at the end of his second season. Even though we're talking about that, I don't think anybody could have forecasted this. Is that fair? I think that, so So I would agree with you. I think there were definitely signs, especially looking back. I think the Derek Mason thing, when that happened, I was like, yeah. something's going on here. Because you don't flag. leave that job for that job. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's got to be something going on behind the scenes. And then obviously the situation of the offensive coordinators, you know, get rid of uh, Mike Bobo. I believe the other guy's name was Austin Davis. It was I a very so. generic white guy name. And so like, he, well, he wasn't there long enough for me to learn his name. So like those two things happening were kind of like, oh, something's going on behind the scenes, but it wasn't this level for sure. This is a prime example of two things being true at the same time. Does Auburn's administration look like it's totally off the rails for potentially firing a coach after year one? Yes, and Harson is now in a horrible position even if he does somehow get to retain his job. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, did Harson also fall short in some pretty key areas and perhaps not approach the job the way that he should have? I would say also yes. By the way, I am not sitting here pretending that Harson engaged in some Bobby Petrino-like scandal until we get some more clarity on that thing. Until that's actually proven, I'm not going to pretend that that is fact. And despite what was being tweeted on Thursday night and all those different things about the intern that he brought from Boise State and all these different things, I'm not going to default to that. Um, I thought that reeked of a coup, and especially after his wife came out and posts on social media that, quote, rumors are carried by haters, spread by fools, and accepted by idiots. I'm just, I'll just say this, like if, if I were Brian Harson's wife and I just found out that I was being cheated on, that would not be my first course of action. Yeah. So that's why I, like my BS meter went off when I saw those initial reports. And look, I'm not saying that that would be, I'm not saying I definitively know that Brian Harson did not have blah, blah, blah relations with that woman. We're not going Bill Clinton. To her. We're not at that point yet. I'm just saying, like, I would put that in a separate discussion if we want to actually be able to focus on Brian Harson and whether or not he's going to be the guy moving forward for Auburn. See, Connor, this is why I love our dynamic in this podcast. That was the first thing I was trying to talk about today. And you made, I think, objectively a very good point about that about his wife because, like you said, the money's already in the bank account. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're fighting over this $18 million or whatever, or whatever, whatever his buyout is. And I think that... If, like you said, you know, she has no reason to basically stick with him at this juncture, considering the yeah. world's kind of coming down around him. So I think that's a very good being objective and not getting caught up, caught up, caught up in sensationalism is good sometimes. And this is one of those moments, I think. Now, hey, if a report drops, then I'll be right back, buddy. 
Yeah, just right, of course. And just because people want to see Brian Harson take the stage in a neck brace and talk about his infidelity doesn't mean that something actually has to have happened. Right? right. Just because we've seen it before doesn't mean that we've necessarily seen it again. It felt like Harson's clapback was in direct response to that rumor, which, mm-hmm. uh, if that's all that is, um, we know who would stand the most from that hitting the fan. Um, it's Auburn, and it's Auburn's administration and trying to, to throw his reputation under the bus, which clearly there's been some sort of effort to do that, and there's continued effort to do that. So for today, let's move past that, because obviously there's way more to this than whether or not Har- Harson was a, a faithful husband. Let's start with the first thing that I believe to be true. That is Auburn's administration being totally off the rails. Right. It's no secret that everybody is saying that this is above athletic director Alan Green, right? Pretty telling to see in that ESPN piece that Green told a handful of Auburn players to continue like it's business as usual. That's basically like when Jim is on the phone with David Wallace who tells him that Dunder Mifflin expects to be out of cash by the end of the year. And Jim is then tasked with telling everyone just don't read the internet, keep working. (laughs) Clearly Auburn's players took the Oscar approach to constantly reading the internet and also sharing some feelings of their own. There are, there are people close to Auburn who have no idea who runs the show, or at least specifically who's saying what, who's pulling what string at, one, at what time. Harson's hiring was seen as this victory for Green because it was his call, and wow, what a crazy concept to let an athletic director do his job and hire what was then his highest paid coach at the university. Obviously, Bruce Pearl now owns that title. Mm-hmm. It's clear that people signing checks have massive coop capabilities. Because if they didn't, Green goes to Auburn players and says, don't believe what you read. We're all in with Harson. Or, hey, we're going in a totally different direction with this thing. No, no, probably actually check that. Green isn't pivoting after one year when he finally got to make a big hiring decision, especially when it was a six and seven season, which I know for some the sky is falling, but let's be honest, for Auburn, a program that has lost at least four games in each of the last eight seasons, ah, you know what? Not exactly sky is falling material in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Alan Green's not backing off that hire all of a sudden after one year if he has full control of the situation, which he clearly does not. Auburn can never fire a coach under normal circumstances. I'm far from the first person to point that out, and I'm far from the last. It just can't help itself. Gus gets $21.5 million to walk away, which was an unprecedented buyout. Chiswick gets fired two years after winning it all, first coach to have that happen for on-field reasons. Tuberville had Jetgate, and I already dug into the whole deal on how his renegotiated contract actually set in motion the wild buyouts that we see in college football today. But what did all three of those guys do? They brought Auburn to the brink of a national championship. I'd argue that all of them caught lightning in a bottle and caught people by surprise in doing it. Tuberville had the two-back system before that was really a big thing, caught a lot of people off guard with that. Chizik had Cam, he'd be the first to tell you, look, that guy could do superhuman things. We were able to build our entire team around him that did not have the talent necessarily to win a national championship, but they had Cam. Gus, of course, had the hurry up, he had the spread attack, and he had about six different miracles that worked in his favor in 2013. Hmm. So all of Auburn's 21st century coaches have had a national championship ceiling. Therefore, why do you have to change your approach of your expectations if you've been rewarded for this? What that's ignoring is that you cannot win a championship the way that you once did. And if you don't believe me, perhaps you haven't seen how much talent you need to win a title. 
-hmm. It's off the charts, and that has changed big time in the playoff era. Auburn reached national titles in the pre-playoff era, before TV money and facilities really ramped up in a major way. We're also seeing recruiting spending rewarded in a massive, massive way. AthleticDirectorU.com had the most recent yearly study about recruiting spending. The numbers from the 2019 fiscal year, Georgia spent the most at $3.6 million. And they claim that part of that was skewed because they didn't have their own plane yet, but whatever, it's still a large number, Ooh. right? <laughs> Poor Georgia didn't have their own plane. Yeah, God forbid. All the way down at number 22 in the country is Auburn at about $956,000. Auburn was sandwiched between Rutgers and Kansas with recruiting Oof. spending. Yeah. Regular Top Kansas? Four. Regular, I think regular Kansas, definitely less miles Kansas because it was 2019, 2019 fiscal year oh, no. that we're talking about here. <laughs> so some, some are going to push back on that and they would say, well, Auburn recruits regionally, driving is cheaper than flying, so therefore that's why they're not spending that, they're not recording that in the same sort of way that these other programs are, so I get that. But Alabama spent three times as much as Auburn did on recruiting in the 2019 fiscal year. Auburn was number nine in the SEC in recruiting spending. To me, that's the baffling part of this because we're talking about paying consecutive buyouts in the $20 million range instead of spending that money on recruiting. We talk about A&M, LSU, Alabama, Georgia. Those programs from the top down have an understanding of what it takes to recruit and compete at an elite level. And Auburn, say what you want about the program, they're all over the place right now when it comes to that. That's just fact. And I know what you might be thinking. That's before Harson even got to Auburn. So why is that on him? Why is that a demerit on Brian Harson? Well, this all came to a head on Wednesday when Harson, a couple days after his offensive coordinator resigned after six weeks on the job, the guy that Will couldn't even learn his name. I got his name to be fair, but it was a very basic name and he was barely there. I just want to say that again. <laughs> fair, very fair. Two days after this happens, Harson goes 0 for 4 on recruits on National Signing Day. Andy Staples wrote an excellent article on this for The Athletic. Brian Harson was not prepared for the beast that is SEC recruiting. Say what you want about whether current players liked him or disliked him, which I'd argue both sides have been pretty vocal on their stance with this whole deal. And clearly, to borrow the phrase from Brothers Osborne, not for everyone, all right? <laughs> Brian Harson has established that. There are people who like him, there are people who don't. but. It's a major, major problem if your head coach doesn't truly understand that this is a talent-driven league and you cannot out-scheme people like you're at Boise State. Forget signing five stars. Auburn's highest rated player was Robert Woodyard, who ranked number 141 in the country in your first full cycle. That is a really tough pill to swallow. Not a single top 100 recruit when you're supposed to have all this momentum and you actually had experienced SEC recruiters on your staff. That's a bad sign. It was worse than Harson's first full cycle when, or his, his first recruiting class, not his first full cycle. But in that first recruiting class, he got Dylan Brooks, who's a top 100 recruit who got out of his NLI at Tennessee with the Pruitt, with the Pruitt stuff and the way that that whole thing fell out. From one dumpster also, fire to another, wow. Exactly, right? And Good he also- he escaped that Tennessee best though. <laughs> anyway. Poor guy. Harson in that first class, the abbreviated class, also got top 100 recruit Lee Hunter. But that was also someone who committed to Gus's staff and then stayed on board even after Harson took over. As you recall, 
it was Lee Hunter who took to Instagram to say that they were treated like dogs by Harson, which was why he transferred. I think there were something like, what, two dozen Auburn players on the roster who liked that post as well. I, there was an Auburn beat writer who had that number, and I, I'm blank on who it was. I, I apologize for not being able to have that information, but not a great sign. Not a great sign at all. The more I read about all of this, and apparently uh, Harson did not support NIL and how it, it was a means to an end for a lot of these players, and Smoke Monday had some voiced some frustrations over that. But the more I read about this stuff, the more that I think Harson wants to coach like it's 1995, and it just isn't. I think if there's something he's guilty of in all of this, it's not being fully self-aware. That's not my way of saying that he needs to be dancing with recruits like he's Brian Kelly or anything <laughs> like that. But if you're gonna be that guy and you're okay with isolating players with harsh, I'm not your friend treatment, you had better go out there and you better recruit the crap out of that transfer portal. That better be your best friend and you better get those guys in there who understand that that's your approach and they're all in with you. And instead, Harson watched 20 plus guys enter the portal and he only got five back. I kept saying in November, what we saw with South Carolina with their first year coach and Shane Beamer, they were buying in. Everybody could see that. You see the way that they respond in the second half of these games. They're beating teams that might have more talent than them. And they're really buying into this vision that their first year coach has created. Meanwhile, Auburn lost, faith in, lost total faith in its coaching staff. Not everyone, but at least enough to where it was impacted. And the five game losing streak to, to end the season was 100% the result of a, the byproduct of a team that was not fully invested in what their coach was selling them. I mean, Some I of guess, that, man, but they're they're beating South Carolina at recruiting. Like, I don't, like I want to let me just take a quick pause here. I don't think Auburn's recruiting is a problem. If you look at their class last year, that was quote unquote good. It's pretty much exactly in the same place that this one that's bad is. If you look at Auburn, they're middle of the SEC. They're eighth in 2022. That is ahead of Lane Kiffin. Uh, that is ahead of Florida, uh, Mississippi State, Mike Leach, which is kind of weird. Sam Pittman is 13th. I I don't think recruiting is their problem. I just think he's kind of a jerk. I mean, whatever they're doing, you know, it's not working, but I mean, the talent inquisition, I don't, I don't think is the problem. There are plenty of programs that are doing doing fine with less talent than Southern. You're talking about these these streaks that Gus had where like they have a ton of talent on this roster. Um, there's always attrition, but like, it's shocking to me how well they're doing in recruiting. It's kind of a takeaway that I have for this because they flipped a couple of DBs from LSU. Osprey is one that grew up from, uh, in Baton Rouge from U High. Like, I would almost give them credit for recruiting amid this mess. I, I think that falls back on their um, on their whole athletic staff because, like, I don't know, man. Like, if you really look at the actual, like, yeah, they don't have, like, the blue chip, blue chip guys, but they got 10 four stars in, in the middle of, like, a six and seven season where they lost the Birmingham Bowl. They lost five straight games. Like, I don't think recruiting Auburn is the problem. I think it's, I, I still think there are some optics with this class that are, that are frustrating the the Auburn administration um, yeah. to a fair level. That, that's debatable, but when you're seeing the likes of Kentucky, Mizzou, all these teams in the SEC West now who are now recruiting at a better level than Auburn, and you're not even in the in the running for some of these stars. That's that's the other tough part. Mm -hmm. is it's not like you've got all these five stars and you're like, oh man, you just missed out on getting this one guy. I think they felt like they weren't even close on some of these dudes, and mm -hmm. that is alarming. And it's alarming because they, well, and again, I'm speaking from, from how I think they are evaluating this yeah. and seeing that, that Harson might have 
isolated certain recruits because they weren't exactly his guy or right. they wanted to, to do the NIL thing and he's not exactly all in with that. And Harson, apparently, if you read the some of the stuff that came out on ESPN.com as well, was like, very adamant that they weren't gonna they weren't gonna cheat. They were gonna do it the right way in the recruiting <laughs> process. Which well, you ain't cheating, what is you ain't cheating? Trying for this point, yeah, bro. I'm like, what is cheating in this era? And if you're not willing to embrace even that part of it, then you're only gonna continue to hurt yourself. And I think there are there are a lot of different little things that you kind of break it down and you understand the context of it. And it's beyond just oh well, yeah, you had a top twenty class, like that's perfectly fine. But then you see how much more talent the teams you are playing every single year are acquiring compared to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the tough part. Um, Okay. I think some people might be listening to this and they might say, all right, well, year one, okay? Year one with a a new head coach and clearly he's got his own style. It's a bit inevitable, right? You're not always gonna win all those battles. It's gonna take time to establish these relationships. It's kind of been a weird way, like we talked about with Dan Mullen and some of the recruiting stuff that was going on with him early in his time. And I think that Brian Harson, as stubborn as he is, I think he could have approached this better. I do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've, we've even heard stuff like the, the ESPN.com story about him not going to, to Bo Jackson's golf tournament and how that pissed off boosters. Like some of these things just seem like, like who's, who's putting that out there? Right, like who's clearly, if you, if you figure out the motivation behind that, that, that's the type of thing that's not seeing the light of day unless it's getting to, oh, hey, people that have influence, people who care about Brian Harson not having a particularly good reputation and they would like that image to be out there. That's why that stuff sees the light of day. Mm-hmm. Now it just feels like boosters are searching for a way to fire him. If you read that statement that Auburn came out with on Monday and thought anything but that, good on you, that's where my mind went, and I know I wasn't, I wasn't alone in that. And honestly, forking over forty million dollars to get rid of two head coaches is an insane thought. I mean, most programs in in college football have never spent that much on coach buyouts. I, the vast majority of them, and I, I wish I knew that number off the top of my head. And probably, I don't know if there's any who <laughs> spent forty million dollars getting rid of head coaches, and they might do so within a 13 month stretch, like a 14 month stretch, which is just a, a crazy thought. Why Auburn couldn't have simply held on to Gus for another year and then got on the same page with everyone, that, that part is, is what doesn't make sense. And if you knew that Brian Harson was destined to fail from the moment that you agreed to that contract, then why did you make the decision to fire Gus Malzahn in the first place? And why haven't you been able to get on the same page at any point during this entire process? Because, if Harson is indeed fired, I, I don't have any faith that they have a plan in place, right? Mm-hmm. I always say, don't present a problem without providing a solution. Auburn has a big problem, and I have zero faith that it has the people in place to provide a solution. Well, anything that you wanna add to that before I offer up one more thought on this deal? Yeah, so I think you just hit the nail on the head at the end with the boosters just kind of doing what's right in front of them. This. And mind you, I don't know anything. Like, I'm not connected in the Auburn community, obviously. Love the people of Auburn. They've always been great to me. As you know, you know, went to Hoover High School, always kind of identified with the Auburn fans because they were like the underdog type of people. But yeah, I mean, just speaking from an outsider perspective, 
this really just reeks of like, you know, rich people who want to get their way. And it's like, oh, well, obviously, yeah, Gus couldn't get it done. We got to get Gus out of here. It's like, okay, so Gus is out of here. So now what? Oh, I like that Harshan guy. He's da 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 da. Okay. Cool. So that's a Larson. No, that's no, you're absolutely right. That. And that, yeah. that part of it's a big deal that they, they didn't really get their guy they wanted. They kind of ended up with Harson. And so it's like, okay, boom. Now we got Harson. And like you said, it's like, well, you hired him. Like at the end of the day, like you have to at some level stick by that. You know what I'm saying? Because at the end of the day, you have to identify what your brand is, right? As a university. And with Auburn, if they want to do the whole like, okay, we're this beautiful university on the plains with these nice people. We're very welcoming, da, da, da. You can't then go, okay, we're going to spend $40 million on kicking two coaches out of town. It's just not how it works. Like optically, number one, financially, number two, because you then can't go, like you were talking about with the recruiting and spending, oh, well, we're just a little Auburn, we're this hometown, but the people of Auburn love Auburn. It's not just the sports teams, it's we're a family, uh, so we don't do all this big budget recruiting stuff. Okay, fine. You're spending that money. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the money is out your account. That direct deposit is hitting. It's hitting uh, Gus Malzahn in his little Hawaiian shirt on the beach right now. There's nothing you could do about that money. It's gone. So at this point, it's like, hey, you need to be real with what your expectations are as a program. You need to see what your path is to success. And for a lot of these guys, like you said, it feels like they don't really have a path. It feels like they're just you know, angry. And that's why I push back so hard on the recruiting stuff because it's like, Harson, you know, do I think he's a great, you know, great coach? No. Do I think he's Bruce Pearl? No. Do I think he's done fine? I think he's done fine. You know, this is an Auburn team that was knocking on the door of the top 10 when Bo Nix was healthy. Obviously their quarterback goes down, they play Finley. Uh, Mike Bobo just kind of decides to forget how to coach or coaches the way that we've all known him to coach. But suddenly, you know, they start off the season on a tear and it seems like this is a great hire. And then the wheels come off. I, I strictly think a lot of that had to do with the quarterback situation and not really having depth. And then obviously the defense was really strong going down the stretch. And, and they talked about some of the we talked about some of the great things that Derek Mason did. And he obviously upset Mason. Uh, this is a lot of information. But what I'm saying is that, you know, do I think he's a great coach? No. Do I think he's gotten a fair shake? Absolutely not. And there are some things, obviously, that you wish he would do differently. But, dude, this is why he was your fourth, fifth, sixth choice. He didn't come out and, you know, get sent down from the heavens to you. But at the end of the day, you got to look up and say, this is where we're at as a program. And you then got to say, okay, again, what's the next step? If we get Harson out of here, there's not a Bruce Pearl that's going to come save you in college football. There's, yeah, the timing's not there. There's no, the timing's not there. And, number one, that situation was so perfect because it was a guy that was a blue chip guy that was crushing it to that was kind of downtrodden and Auburn bought him on the dip. I mean, do you, you want Urban Meyer? <laughs> like, what, who's that don't guy here? There. You know, don't you don't, don't go there. That's what I'm saying. Who's that guy here? Like, he doesn't exist. Maybe, like, people are talking about Matt Rule and stuff. Again, good luck there. So it's like, I just, could you do better? Maybe. But this is the classic, like, guy at the bar who's talking to a girl and, like, looking at the cuter girl going, you know, I think I can get with her. It's like, dude. You brought this this girl to this date. You need to finish this date, be a gentleman, be respectful, get on out of there, maybe slide that girl your number on the way out. But there's a way to do this, bro. You're, you're being a jerk here, well, Auburn Boosters. That's what Jetgate was. Um, yeah. I mean, that's basically like the, the exact scenario of Bobby Petrino in this weird world that we've created is the pretty girl at the bar, the prettier yeah. girl at the bar. I think it's easy to say, to look at this situation and say, well, Boosters, and blah, 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 shouldn't have this kind of power. And, and in theory, absolutely. And, and there will be a lot of things said, there's already been a lot of things said and written that are on the money with being able to break down this power dynamic and how it is ultimately putting Auburn in this 
this very unenviable spot, I think, mm-hmm. where they're, they're kind of a national punching bag at this point. In theory, an athletic director would walk into that job and maybe it'll be Alan Green getting replaced because he's got a year left on his contract. And that his, maybe his successor will say, look, this is how it's gonna go down. Or ideally, a coach would say that, and you'd have those people respect that decision and not be like, wait, I just hired this dude and he's trying to tell me what I can and can't do. Remember what Feinbaum said on this podcast about Saban. He walked into Alabama and basically said, hey, I am running this show. Saban could do that because he had the credentials and Alabama made him the first $4 million coach in the history of college football. That program was desperate, it reached that point. I don't think Auburn's brass is desperate enough or humble enough to accept someone doing that. And that's part of the reason why we've seen this pattern in the hiring process. It's been people who accept the dynamics at play and not necessarily going out here and poaching some massive name or something like that. But I I think that's worth remembering and why it is so complicated. And this is like, this is not necessarily just as simple as oh, we need an athletic director who will stand up for himself or a head coach who will stand up for himself. Buddy, I bet you they've tried. <laughs> I bet you they've tried. And it is just not an easy thing to do. And it's it's such, it's such a unique one-of-one position. It is the most unique job in college football. And this has only confirmed that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's kick it to Cole Kubelik great conversation with someone who has seen this Auburn athletic department from both sides as a player, obviously as a media member uh, for the better part of two decades. So we dug into that, of course, some senior bowl stuff, a little Malik Willis and more. So here is Cole Kubelik. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is our good friend, Cole Kubelik. Cole, uh, when I asked you to come on last Wednesday, things were just a bit different on the planes. I I don't want to say that all was well, because obviously things had been kind of bubbling beneath the surface with Brian Harson, And I know you've already discussed this at length on McElroy and Kubelik. So I don't want to necessarily force you into any one direction. Uh, who do you find yourself defending in all this? Is it Harson? Is it Alan Green? Players, fans, boosters, anyone? Um, I, I think there are times that you could defend a lot of different people. Uh, that are involved in this. I, I think there are a lot of there's a lot of blame to go around, a lot of different ways. Um, we have I have found myself coming to defense of Brian Harson uh, multiple times. Uh, I, I think if you talk about his his procedure, his attitude, his demeanor, you know, I think it's something that is and can be successful in college football. Is that gonna is that gonna be something that every kid enjoys? Probably not, especially players that have left. So I'm not I'm not just gonna say guys that guys that didn't feel like that they could they could make it in that system or that scheme or that regime, um, that all of a sudden what they say is going to be the end-all, be-all of how things are going. Um, so I, I think we also look at kids in the portal. Uh, well, kids are going to the portal at every school. And I, I'm not just going to take that and say, oh, yeah, this is a guy that's not getting the job done. Now, would you have liked to have seen some more replacements in the portal? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Austin Davis situation is not one that I think is 100% on Brian Harson. Uh, I don't think Brian Harson forced that situation by any stretch of the imagination, but he's the head football coach, so it falls in his lap. So I think there are a lot of things that, that I could defend Brian Harson on, but he's still the head football coach, and you know it, it falls on him. Some people tell you that 
having a recruiting class ranked 18, it's fine. It's no big deal. It's it's pretty good. But when he's still eighth or ninth in the SEC, so, you know, people are going to have frustrations there. And, you know, the kind of guy that he recruits, I I know it's it's his kind of a guy, and and it's going to be maybe different than what a lot of other schools and conference are recruiting. But, you know, it's it's – it's not something that, that makes intends to make a lot of people happy. So, um, you know, I, I think from from the standpoint of some of the boosters, you, you could almost come to their defense in a certain way and say, well, you, you have to look in the mirror at some point and, and realize that, you know, this, this guy's been flying you on his private jet and been taking you to dinners and buying you Louis Vuitton shoes and Birkin bags at he's going to expect something at some point. You're going to have to hang out with him. Like you're not just, you're not just flying to Vegas, getting bottle service and then going home with your friend. Like that, it's not the way that it works. I mean, at some point in time, Auburn has to have an understanding that if you allow certain things to take place, then certain expectations are going to be there from those individuals. So I think you could run in circles, defending certain parts of this. Um, and it all just comes down to alignment. It all comes down to people pulling in the same direction. And then some egos get in the way. You know, I, I think you could probably point a lot of fingers to communication. There's probably a lot of different sides that believe that they are doing what's necessary from a communication standpoint to make things good or keep things okay or cordial. And the reality is none of them probably are, or they could all be doing more. And, you know, I, I, I think more than anything else, you know, what's, what's at Auburn right now you know, Auburn, Auburn lives on islands, and the administration, you know, the, the, the football coach, the coaching staff, the boosters, the trustees, the president, it's like there are all these different islands. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of bridges right now between those islands. And I don't know if there can ever be a you know, tectonic shift where the islands can actually come together and make a continent. I think we've seen that happen, you know, in small bursts over the years. But when things are, are okay and cordial, there are bridges between those islands. And right now, th- there don't seem to be many bridges between a lot of those islands. There's a question that I think has been worth asking as we've seen all of this play out, not just within the last four days, but I mean, you could even go back to, to the summer when you're first trying to figure out if Brian Harson's going to be a fit. And I know we throw around culture fit, and I think that's way overblown. I think it's more about wins and losses in this business. But you have watched different coaches with different backgrounds come into this job and you being closely affiliated to this program for more than two decades now. Do you think Brian Harson came to Auburn with the right approach for the job that he was asked to do? Uh, well, it, it goes back to what you just said, Connor. You said it's, it's about winning and losing. And I think his approach is about winning and losing football games. Now, does that mean that there's a complete understanding of how that gets done in the SEC? Maybe not. Do I think that some of these issues with, with Brian Harson and some of the complaints that people have are some of those self-inflicted? Yeah, absolutely they are. Um, now, I don't think that there are, are any, or at least that I haven't seen, self-inflicted issues that are a fireable offense individually, and I'm not even sure collectively, to be honest with you, that they, they mount to be legitimately a fireable offense. I also don't know everything that everybody else knows. So I think that I think Brian Harson is a get out of my way, let me coach kind of a guy. And I don't know if that works at Auburn. I don't know if that 
I mean, let's let's think back to the guys that have been successful in the past. You know, we we've seen. I mean, Tommy was the ultimate CEO. I can remember, I can remember Tommy allowing the media to come to practice, and he had a golf cart. He would ride over to where the media was stationed behind their little rope in the corner of the practice fields, and he'd go over there and talk to those guys for for two or three practice periods. You know, um, you know, Terry always had a, a booster day or two where all the donors would come out and there'd be hundreds of people at practice uh, on that day. I always hated it because, you know, Rick Trickett always, you know, went full peacock on those days. Like his feathers were all the way out and he would just <laughs> let it rip on those days. And like it was never fun for us um, on, on that particular day or those particular days. So I think there are, has always been a back and forth of, of managing it, trying to manage it knowing how to manage it, and like, who has the real advantage. I don't think any coach who comes in has a true advantage because they haven't done it before. And you're not going to really know exactly how to do it unless you've done it. So, you know, that's why, I, I mean, I have a standing joke that I tell these guys. Like, I talk to a lot of coaches that say, hey, would you take that job? Do you think I should take this job? What, what would you think about that job? And the first thing I tell them is if they're all first-time head coaches – is you better have your FU coach ready, man. Because I think every coach has got to have an FU coach, a guy that, that walks around and says, hey, FU, man, don't do that. FU, don't say that anymore. You know, there's certain coaches that have, that, that people who have the best interest in mind of the program and them collectively could sit back and say, hey, don't say that anymore. Or stop going to your press conferences and saying those things. Hey, don't tweet those things anymore. Put Twitter down. You know, go take your phone from, you know, so-and-so that you're close to and tell them to stop tweeting about things. Or, hey, you 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 got to go sit down with this guy for 10 minutes and talk to him. Or, hey, there's this meeting that happens every year. You need to go be a part of it. I'm going to pick you up at 3. We're going to go over there. It's going to take 30 minutes, and I'm going to bring you back. That's it. I don't care what you have. Clear your schedule. you got to go to this. And, and understand that you're probably going to hurt some feelings, and there's going to be people who don't like what you say, but it's for the right reasons and it's because you have their best interest in mind. So whether it's the Sergeant at arms or the assistant to the head coach or the, you know, director or player personnel, um, you know, the, the, the meeting of the minds individual that has the best coach's interest at heart, whatever you want to call that person, every coach needs an FU coach, not a yes man, but an FU coach. And, I think a lot of times in these instances, you got to have somebody to be the stopgap between the power brokers and the people of influence and the people in the administration and then you and your staff. And sometimes you just need it between you and your staff and certain people don't have it. So I, I, I just, it, it has to be very difficult for him, Brian Harson, a guy that's as strong willed as he is that has done something that's worked for a very long time, who's just trying to do that, yet there are certain people that don't think that he's done it, don't think he can do it, or just don't want him to continue to try to do it. A lot of people probably just listened to, to you say that, and they said, well, why can't Brian Harson walk into the, the room with the boosters or with an athletic director and say, everybody get out of my way, let me do what I want to do, and in reality, that is only going to be heard, it is only going to be understood if you've done it, 
And if you command that presence, if you want to be Nick Saban walking into that room in 2007, like he did at Alabama, and he walks in and he says, this is how it's going to be from now on. I have the credentials to be able to say that. Get out of my way. You're desperate enough and you better listen to me. All right, fine. Instead, Auburn's administration has been rewarded with three national championships, essentially three national championship appearances or on the brink of a national title, whatever you want to call it, if you include 2004. And instead, they've sort of been rewarded with this approach. And this athletic department, it, it seems one of one in the way that it operates and maybe not from, from the top down, but it at least kind of feels like there's just no normal way to fire a coach. Jetgate, of course, and the buyout with Gus Malzahn and you know, paying a national championship winning coach, you know, all that money to go away two years later. You know, Auburn just does it in a different way. Yet at the same time, like, this success has kind of gotten in their way from having this far out approach. When did this odd dynamic of booster influence really take shape at Auburn? Has is, is this just always been like this or have you seen this kind of take off more so in the 21st century? No, I think it's been, I mean, it, this goes back in my opinion, at least, you know, to the eighties. And I, I think that it has, it has changed hands a few times. It has had different people at the front of the line, uh, sometimes multiple people, sometimes individuals. And, uh, you know, some have come and gone. Some have, have, have wanted to, to do it more. Some have wanted to do it less. Some have decided to just step away. Um, so, yeah, and I think now is an interesting spot because you probably have some people that are sitting back saying, that other people on the other side of this got this last one wrong, and so they want to come in and try to repair it. And that's, and that's their opinion. They, they believe that, that it wasn't done right from the get-go, and, and that's why you, I mean, there are a lot of people right now, Connor, that are saying it's been one year. Like, the guy hasn't even had a chance. The guy hasn't even had the opportunity to go build this or construct this or try to get this right. We all know it can't be done in a year. Uh, yeah, we know what Gus did, but that's – I mean, part of that was just sort of happenstance, and then he was able to, to keep it going for a little while, and it was up and down. But there are very few programs that come in year one look totally different. And even with the portal today and how it is, you, you, can, you can change the face of a team and you can make things look, look a little bit different. But I, I think that this has been going on for 40, 50 years, and it has changed hands a few different times. It has been in and out of, of different people's control. And some of that's been voluntary, some of that's been involuntary, some of that's been based on other positions that other people are in through the power structure. But I think in this instance, you probably have some folks that just don't believe that this particular hire was the right one the last time around. And now that they're in a, a, a more advantageous position, that they can flex a little bit, so to speak. And they want to try to get it right their way this time around. I dug into the recruiting spending already and how it's just, it's not even in the same ballpark anymore with compared to Alabama, Georgia, LSU, A&M. And I don't want to oversimplify things here because the situation obviously has so many different layers to it, but is it is simple as saying, hey, instead of being so willing to drop a bag to get rid of a coach the second he slips up or if this booster disagrees with it or that booster, what like, why, do, why doesn't Auburn instead spend like the competition is on recruiting? 
I mean, I, I, I think, like I said before, if you go back to Chris Peterson at Boise, you know, it's, it's been done a little bit of a different way. And there, there has always been more emphasis on guys that fit what they wanted and fit what they felt like they needed. So, um, again, I think this, this goes back to some of the issues that you're talking about in recruiting being a little bit more collective as to it's not just one thing. Like, can you be mad at having the 18th ranked class or, you know, a class that's around 20, you know, outside of the top 15, whatever, not on par with Alabama, A&M, Georgia? Sure. But I think people expect it to be a little bit better than what it was this year. I think more people focus on the departures through the portal and not necessarily replacing many of those. And that's when I think you look back and say, okay, that's, you know, that, that, that's not something that can continue. And, and then, too, I think most people in the SEC believe, yes, you need guys that fit what you want to do, but let's be real who you're going to be competing against each and every week. It, it almost comes down to, you better go get the most talent humanly possible and then figure out how to mold what you do around them. Because what are you going to be facing week in and week out? The most talented players possible. And that there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there between maybe what's desired by fans and administration and what's kind of desired by, you know, Brian Harson and his staff, not saying that they don't want to get talented players, but they're okay going after a little bit different type of player than maybe what a lot of other coaches in this league have been gunning for for a very long time. I did want to talk to you about the Senior Bowl, and I promise we're going to get to that in a second here. Um, one one last thing on, on this job, because if and when it comes open and people are wondering about what the future of Auburn looks like, we're going to come back to this question of Auburn and whether or not it's attractive. Is it attractive to come into a place where clearly there are things above you that are outside of your control? You just saw what they did with the year one head coach. You just saw what they did with a coach with a winning record in the SEC who beat Saban several times. But at the same time, it's like you have this, this ability to get to that championship level, or at least you think you do. Only six programs since 2010 have been to multiple national championships outside of Auburn. And you know what? You feel, you feel relatively confident that you could put a winner on the field. So open-ended question, is Auburn an attractive job anymore? Absolutely. And, and I think there are a lot of different reasons around it. Um, number one, you, you just look at the resources that are going to be available. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about how, yeah, some of those resources can be a bit of a headache, but if you can never find out how to get those things aligned, imagine the power that you would have behind those that you could be able to move forward with. You're getting a brand-new football facility that's going to be ready probably right after this next season kicks off that sure. will take a backseat to no one in the SEC, and, and honestly, maybe no one in college football other than Oregon, and I think it would be on tap with what Oregon's going to have. So. You also have you, have you have a great stadium. You have great fans. You have a great home field advantage. You have a great brand, um, even though some of these things that you and I are talking about today have tarnished that brand a little bit. Still, collectively, that brand is strong and powerful, and you're playing in the best division in college football, which is always going to give you advantages, maybe not the advantages over Alabama and Georgia, but it's going to give you a lot of advantages over a lot of other schools. And, not, and don't ever think that all coaches look at it and say, oh, I have to play Kirby Smart and Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher every year. That's that's bogus way to look at it. They're, they're, the great majority of coaches will look at that and say, 
have an opportunity to go against the best of the best each and every year. I want to test myself against them. I want to show them what I'm made of, and I think my way can be good enough to be able to go out and compete and be somebody who's relevant in that space. A lot of guys want that challenge, and they're willing to take that challenge. So I think that the resources, the facilities, um, what's happened historically are all things that are in Auburn's favor when it comes to being a desirable job. Um, speaking of Auburn, Malik Willis, you got to see him at the Senior Bowl. Um, listeners of this podcast already know I've been banging the drum uh, for Malik Willis for, for a long time now, spring of 2019, I guess, maybe even a little bit before that when he was kind of in a backup role. The sliding door of that decision is fascinating to look back on. Bo Nix and Joey Gatewood are kind of you know, given that opportunity to, to compete for the starting job, and it's considered like, hey, Malik is going to be third string. Uh, the the two part question is one: Are we talking about Malik as possibly the first quarterback off the board if he stays at Auburn, or is it that more of a developmental thing that we saw with Hugh Freeze? And then two: Is Gus still at Auburn if he picks Malik over Bo Nix? Um, I, I don't. I would probably say no to all of the above. Because I think just the the Auburn the Auburn offense towards the end had just it had gotten a little bit stale it had gotten a little bit stagnant and it had lost some creativity and and I just I don't know if Malik would have been put in positions to be able to prove the things that he did under Hugh Freeze and that's not really a knock on Gus I mean part of that is what they had and part of it is just you know sort of what it had become and there were just there were a lot that there was a lot that goes into that. I think I think Malik also needed a bit of a fresh start. I, I talked to him last week in Mobile, and, and he talked about just kind of needing to step away and kind of needing to hit the reset button and kind of needing to start over. You know, he's he talked about his transfer pretty candidly. He's like, I didn't have many options because I didn't have any film. I had no tape. I didn't have anywhere to go. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have Oklahoma and, and, and Texas and Florida knocking on my door because they hadn't seen me play, really. So we didn't, no one really knew what he was capable of. And then Hugh gives him these opportunities in this up-tempo, RPO-based offense with some zone read, quarterback run stuff that allows him to put on full display what kind of athlete he is. Uh, as far as the first quarterback off the board, I, I think it's in play, but I, I still think that, that that is Matt Corral. And personally, my opinion is that's not very close right now because with what you need to do to be successful ultimately in the NFL, Matt Corral is better than that than any other quarterback available in this draft. And I think he still has some more upside. Um, I don't think he has hit a ceiling just yet. I think Matt Corral still has room to grow. He gives you good mobility. He gives you competitiveness. He's a leader. He's got great deep ball accuracy. He has a strong enough arm to make every throw on the field. He's shown you he can thrive in multiple offenses, being asked to do different things. So for me, Matt Corral's quarterback one in this draft. That's just kind of where I stand. I think after that, it's a bit of a crapshoot right now. I do think Malik helped himself last week. Um, the ball comes out different when you watch him, when you see him in person. Two things stuck out to me last week, seeing Malik Willis in person. One, he is thicker than I anticipated him to be. He, he, he has more girth than, than you think that he does. And when you see him, he's, just, he's put together a little bit better than I anticipated by watching him on film or seeing his games on television. And number two is just the way the ball comes out of his hand. There's more pop. I mean, he, he, had, he had more explosion on the ball coming out of his hand than any of the other quarterbacks did um, that we were able to watch there at the Senior Bowl. And 
you know, that, that includes Kenny Pickett, that includes Sam Howell, that includes Carson Strong, uh, who, who, who may have the, who may have the, like the, the most miles per hour on his fastball would be Carson Strong, but the ball just gets out of Malik hands a little bit faster and with a little bit something different. So he had a really bad weather day where I thought he did some nice things that probably helped him out a little bit to say, hey, if things aren't all in his favor, if this is not a scripted workout, how's he going to react? Still did some good things. And keep in mind, he's always going to be able to add that athleticism, speed, durability uh, on top of what he's able to do with his arm. So there will be some things that hold him back. I mean, I talked to Hugh Freeze as well at Tuesday's practice, and he said, listen, we, you only have so many hours in the week as a college coach. We weren't able to go through everything. I couldn't, we, we couldn't develop everything. So from a progression standpoint, he's probably a tad behind. Um, does he become – does he utilize his legs as something that he relies upon? You know, are they, are they nice to have or need to have? And I think a lot of times he utilizes his legs as a need to have, as opposed to a nice to have. I mean, just go, you can go watch his film and see that there is just, I mean, there is a, a clear refusal to just take checkdowns a lot of times from Malik Willis. And I think a lot of that is that he knows he can keep plays alive and he knows he can go make plays after he keeps them alive because he's done it so many times. So you can't really hold it against him, but he's going to need a little bit more development as far as getting through progressions and understanding all of the reads that goes with playing that position in the NFL. But his athleticism will help him do that because he, he's going to still be able to make some things happen even if he doesn't have that perfected. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. And I think the question is a, is a fun little hypothetical, but – you're right. And I, I talked to him a couple of years ago about it, about when he was just getting started off at Liberty and just getting to kind of hear his perspective and, and ask Hugh Freeze about getting to work with somebody like Malik and you see the raw tools and you still see the sack numbers this past year and how brutal it probably was at times to try and figure out, all right, how do we make sure that we're putting our guy in spots to be able to succeed with Corral? And I think I know that your answer to this question when you see a guy that has that kind of that kind of chip, and you've seen the way that he operates on the sidelines, you've seen the way that he talks to people, the way that people listen to him as well, I think that's going to sell so many people, and I think we're going to be having that conversation. We haven't really gotten to the corral stage of this because he wasn't at the Senior Bowl and like all those other dudes were, but how do you think that's going to kind of help him in the evaluation process to be able to say to some of these front offices, like, look... You might not think this guy has these unbelievable traits like a Trevor Lawrence, but get this guy in a room, and I promise you, you'll be captivated by the way that he's able to kind of bring everyone together. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, for, I'll go back to, you know, I had Matt Crowell bunch in his career and, you know, had the, had the Tennessee game where he, this past year where he was down, I think two offensive linemen, Braylon Sanders didn't practice all week. So he wasn't 100. percent I think he had two other receivers hurt. They had like no tight ends in that game, and and he had you know that was kind of the beginning of his little ankle deal that he had. And I remember talking to Lane on the field before the game, and we were going through all the guys that were out. And and Lane's like, I know this. Like we're not gonna like like we can't ask him to move around a whole lot today because like he's not even healthy. He's like the field line's banged up, so I don't know what we're gonna do. And that game just basically turned into you know Matt Corral draw right, draw left. To leave the pocket is essentially what it was. I think he ran for like 160 or something. I can't remember, but it was a lot. And Matt Corral went and put that team on his back with his legs. But that's the kind of competitor he is. I mean, go back to the bowl game. I know he gets hurt and leaves the bowl game, but there's a couple plays before that where he's trying to truck a DB. Like, that's just – that's who he is, and that, that's what he is. And so I, I think if you're, if, you're, if you're 
in the in an NFL front office and you're trying to look for leadership qualities, leadership traits, somebody who you can build around and somebody who's going to bring all those intangibles, he probably has as many or more of them than any other quarterback in this class. Um, you know, you see a little bit of it from Kenny Pickett when you talk to him. Uh, you understand why Sam Howell was successful when you sit down and talk to him. We mentioned this stuff with Malik. You know, Malik's a little bit more of a reserved guy. But the thing that I like about Malik is, you know, he's humble, on one. And two, uh, you know, he's kind of unassuming and, and not afraid to take blame. Like, he is super accountable. And, you know, Malik Willis is not someone who's going to try to shift the blame to somebody else. He's not going to point at the receiver when he's running the wrong route. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to lose his mind and go, you know, smack the left tackle on the ass when he jumps off sides. Like, it's on him. He knows he's the quarterback. And he's willing to take it. So I think that part of his game will help him as well. Now, being the reserved part, you know, certain people are going to see that and be like, oh, man, can this kid go lead in the huddle? Obviously, he's done it and, and, and taken liberty well past where we ever thought they were going to be, even with Hugh Freeze. So I think there are certain guys that have certain traits, but if you're looking for who has the most of that in this draft, once again, it's, it's Corral because he's the ultimate competitor and he's got that fire, he's got that juice, he's got the energy that you want your quarterback to have. Doesn't have to be SEC here, but uh, who is the guy that you saw at the Senior Bowl that really just kind of blew you away? And, and I'm guessing it was somebody that you probably saw in, for, in person for the first time. Yeah, there was a couple that really, really, really stuck out. I thought Perrion Winfrey, um, Oklahoma defensive lineman, was just fantastic. And I'd seen him on film some. I, I'd watched him and studied him a little bit, but he was just really explosive. and had, I mean, he showed elite quickness down there at practices that I attended in Mobile. He was someone that really stood out that I'm a big fan of. Obviously, Trevor Penning got a lot of publicity down there. Um, some for the right reasons. Some Maybe some would say for the wrong reasons. I think all for the right reasons. I mean, the guy comes in. And he's from Northern Iowa. Everybody's doubting him. Everybody's asking if he can hold up against Power Five competition. So, yeah, he brought a little extra. You know, he, there was some shoving after plays. He was getting in guys' faces. You know, he was falling on guys. I don't blame him. Like he made a name for himself. And I think a, a tackle from Northern Iowa coming into that game, there, it doesn't surprise me that you feel like that's what you have to do. And I felt like he did it. And I don't feel like anything he did was dirty or illegal. Yeah, was it a little extra? And did he do that? He did that some during his career, and he was penalized for it. Now, you're not going to be able to do that in NFL games, but I think this was a little bit of a different setting, and I, I understand why he did it, and I had no problem with it. I like Cole Strange, the center out of UT Chattanooga. I think in a wide zone scheme, he's somebody who could be really effective. Great story. Um, love what I saw from Zion Johnson, Boston College offensive lineman. I think he's going to end up being a center. And he can be a center that really brings a lot of power. I mean, Zion Johnson, if you turned him around and took a picture from behind and just cut it off at the waist and just looked at his, like, his trunk and his quads and his calves and his rear end, you would, I would draft him just off that, just the way he's built in the lower body. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's insane to just see how well he's put together and have an understanding of the kind of power that he's going to be able to generate at the next level. I thought the receiver, the tight end group was fantastic. I mean, I, I like, I like Jeremy Ruckert. Um, I like Turner Cole. I like Cole Turner. I like Jake Ferguson. I mean, and Isaiah likely on the other side of I me, mean, the, the tight end group, just top to bottom. Trey McBride is going to be a super yeah. valuable NFL player. And I was a little disappointed with his height and his length, but I think Trey McBride is going to be a guy. You see him line up at fullback, H back out wide. 
inline tight end. Like I think you're going to see that guy line up everywhere and do everything. And he catches almost every ball thrown to him. So he'll be a really good pro. Some of the receivers didn't get near enough credit. Like Christian Watson out of North Dakota State, big fan of his work. Romeo Dubs out of Nevada, another guy that I was really impressed with. You know, those guys just weren't really talked about a whole bunch during the course of the week. But really liked what I saw from those two. Um, Devonta Wyatt had a nice week. We already knew he was a solid player. You know, Neil Farrell had a great year. He, he did some nice things that stuck out, but we knew – we knew what kind of a player he was. I liked what I saw from Brian Robinson out of Alabama, but we all knew what he's capable of, and I think going to be one of the first running backs off the board. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was there was a lot to like about what we got at the senior bowl. You know, Greg Dulcich, the tight end from UCLA, um, not going to block much. Don't bring him in to, to try to get in front of anybody, but great route runner, great hands, and could run away from you. If he can develop as a blocker at all, he's going to be a long-time successful NFL player, and finally, I'll go, um, I'll go Calvin Austin out of Memphis. You know, not very big, former walk-on receiver. Uh, and, I, I mean, a guy that has legit track speed. And you just think about some of the guys in the NFL now, the way they're being moved around, like, like Debo Samuel being used in the backfield. You look at what Kansas City does with Nico Hardman. Um, I mean, I think he could be a move guy in the NFL. You hand him a couple jets, you throw him a few screens, you take a couple shots down the field. And he could be somebody that really helps the team because he's just going to bring a different kind of speed that nobody else really has. For those listening at home, I, I, that, that, this is that's that, that's the exact reason why I often say Cole is as good as anybody in this business because he can just take a question like that where I say like, oh yeah, who's the guy who really jumped out to you and he rips off fifteen to twenty guys <laughs> who just I, and obviously it stood out and, and Cole is, is second to none in that fashion. Um, I consider you a voice of reason, and there are very few analysts who take in the game from your vantage point. So I think you're especially equipped to, to answer this question. Steve Shaw said that he's open to all ideas here. So you, you might be providing the next blueprint to solving one of the sport's biggest problems. What's your perspective on the whole faking injuries thing? Um, I hate it. It's ugly. It's getting worse. Um, and obviously it's not worse everywhere, but, but the teams that decide to utilize it, it's, it's really bad. And it puts, I think it puts a lot of, first off, it puts a lot of people in a bad spot. I mean, you think about us as broadcasters. Do it again. I mentioned we did, we did Ole Miss in Tennessee. Did we believe that the majority of those injuries were faked injuries? Yes. Can we say that on the air? No. Because it only takes one time when you try to call a guy out and his Achilles is torn and you find out the next day and you're, you're done. So there, you have to give a little bit of a benefit of the doubt because I've been a guy that played, and I was obviously injured a lot. So the last thing you want to do is call a guy out when there could be something. But we also know deep down inside that a lot of these are being faked. And when we see guys standing around and then all of a sudden go down, or they take a step towards the sideline and then they go down, or they see the offense get, get lined up quickly and then they go down after they're trying to switch positions or get lined up, that kind of stuff can't continue. It's just not good for the game. The integrity part of it's not good for the game. I think it's slowing the game down. Our games are getting longer than ever. And got to find a way to get these games into a more compact window. But as far as how you manage it from a rules perspective, the only thing that I know that makes any sense is, is when a player goes down that, that he's out for that series. And once again, putting people in difficult spots, and I know fans hate this because 
not many fans have a lot of respect for officials, that puts officials in a very bad spot because they got enough to look at as it is. And they can't keep up with everything that's happening, especially when things are going fast as it stands right now, Connor. So now who are you designating to watch number 32 that was injured and has to come out of the game for the next, I don't know, what, like, what if what the play's on the five-yard line coming out and a guy goes down grabbing his hamstring and you have a 13-play drive? Well, uh, I mean, you got an official who's dialed in when you're substituting your entire front seven, or you you, know, you get a four or five person sub package that comes in, and you got to you got to try to find out if number thirty two is coming back in the game on the twelfth play of the drive. Like I'm, I don't I don't know who's watching that. And then what's the penalty if you do try to sneak a guy back in, but it doesn't get caught until after the game? Are you suspending the kid for a half? Then you hold him out for the first series of the game. I mean, I don't even know. But I, I, there has to be something that's done where teams become accountable for trying to make it happen. And, you know, the flip side of that, too, is, is you know, most of the time when we talk about this, we're talking about d- defensive players because they're the ones that are trying to slow the game down. So you have to treat the offensive players the same way. So if your quarterback, you know, gets dinged a little bit and, you know, he's kind of got a dead arm and he's got to come out for a play or two, He's out for the rest of the series. And what if that's well, – what if there's two minutes to go in the game and you're down four points and Bryce Young's not in the game or Kenny Pickett's not in the game or Matt Corral's not in the game? Can I use a timeout to – can I burn a timeout to get him back in? So there's, there's still a lot that comes with it. But I think the only feasible way to try and manage it and limit it – because I don't think you're ever going to truly get rid of it because people are going to practice it. And they're going to talk about it. They're going to get good at it. And they're going to know when to use it and how to use it. Or they're going to have a position that's deep enough that it doesn't matter. So they're they're always going to game it a little bit. But I think holding a guy out for for that series in which he gets banged up for the rest of that series, and you can almost even sell that off as player safety. Like, hey, if a guy's hurt to where he's laying on the ground and can't go play, does he need to be coming back in for the next series? Probably not. Maybe not. I don't know. So you 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 could almost have a discussion about that in a couple different ways, but I think you've got to hold them out for a period of time. And how you manage it after that, I think is something that's for people that make a lot more money than I do. Yeah. Like if coordinators of official, the coordinator of officials could have somebody in the press box with a seat, like hundred bucks for a game, just all your, your entire responsibilities follow that person who leaves the game with an injury and you got the binoculars up there. I mean, there are people well, you already, you already have a moments. medical, you already have a, uh, a medical spotter up there for concussions. And so, right. you know, now do you put somebody with them and part of their responsibility because it falls somewhat in the same category injuries to say, Hey, you know, we buzz you up. All right. Number, number 52 is out for the rest of this series. And you make sure 52 doesn't come back in. So, you know, the crowd most likely is going to go crazy. The other coaching staff is going to go crazy if he comes back in. But let's not sit here and pretend like somebody wouldn't – you start getting 11, 12, 14-play drive, they're not going to try to sneak a kid back in. No, it's, it's perfectly fair. and It's definitely an imperfect thing right now that we're all searching to be able to, to figure it out. Um, last one for you. You tweeted last week – not all things happen how they appear or why they appear. And I think I figured out exactly what you meant by that. That was the same day that Austin Davis resigned. So based on that, I think you were trying to say that Tom Hart actually has hair plugs. Is that correct? That is absolutely 
Correct. That's exactly where I was heading with that. You know, it's unfortunate that people had to find out about it this way, but sometimes that's just the way it goes. And sometimes, uh, you know, different times uh, from different people. And, you know, I hate it for him, but, you know, it, the, the bad part about it is it still doesn't look great. You know, it still kind of looks like it's fading up there a little bit. So uh, whoever whoever made that happen in ways that we normally wouldn't imagine, uh, you need to uh, you need to get that part of it figured out. So I don't know if he needs to go to the uh, – whoever does the billboards up in Chicago for Erlacher, whoever that guy yep. is. But, um, yeah, it, it's about time to start looking into that. Hey, Joe Buck got addicted to hair plugs, and look what it did for his career. So, hey, maybe – Maybe Tom is on a rocket launch, and it'll it'll be it'll be great for him. Um, Cole, this has been just absolutely awesome, man. I, I'm sure I'll I'll see you at SEC Media Days in, in a few months, and uh, we'll talk soon. Hope so. Appreciate it, Connor. Always good catching up. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, fullest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out, we're talking student loans today. Announcement. As of Sunday, I am debt free. Let's go. That's a big deal, bro. And at least part of my life. Um, still got a massive mortgage to pay. So <laughs> I guess um, not debt free in that department, but my student loans are officially paid off. 31 years old. I would have been paying them until my 32nd birthday, if not for just saying, screw it, I'm gonna pay the remaining balance and I'm gonna do that instead of paying another, you know, the last like four months, whatever it was. Total, it was tens of thousands of dollars. I can't remember what the final number was, but mm -hmm. it took a little less than nine years to be able to cover it. It was like 318 a month for the longest time. It's been 400 a month at different points during this which is like that's that's a car payment yep. a month basically so we're we're fired up to to be able to start saving again and yes we because lauren and i have a shared checking account so where we have at least for the last six years so she has also i guess been definitely contributing hmm. into paying off student loans um but i i do feel like a huge weight has been has been lifted off of my shoulders to not have to deal with that anymore. And I, I think I took a pretty typical approach to student loans. Grateful to have parents who helped me out, basically pay the difference between in-state tuition, out-of-state tuition, mm -hmm. because I am from Illinois. I had to pay out-of-state tuition at Indiana. Um, and I had minimal scholarships, of course, Part of that was because I was a good, not great student. Another part of that was because for whatever reason, the GPA standards were way higher than the ACT requirements. Mm. Never fully understood that. It didn't matter that I got a 29 on my ACT, sick brag, but I had like a 3.4 GPA in high school and I think it was a 3.5 minimum to get scholarships, whatever. Um, oh yeah, that's another thing. And for everyone listening to this, who is maybe you have young kids or something like that, you're going to have young kids don't have any kids yet or anything, but Lauren and I have agreed that if and when we have a child, we will make sure that they know exactly what the scholarship requirements are at yep. the big local schools. Yep. I, why, why couldn't teachers tell you that your freshman year? Because that would be like, helpful, hey, Connor. You gotta learn discrete math. Oh my God. Yeah, 
Yes, tell me something that I will not use past the age of 14. Dude, if I was a teacher, that. I would have that plastered all over my classroom. Like, yeah, you need to 3-5 to get a scholarship in Alabama, 3-whatever, like I, yeah, what, what what can you do? Like that's a conversation you, like they should have been having with us every single day. Cause like for me, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I obviously didn't go to a state school, but it's like that definitely would have motivated me if I if I made that choice where it's like, oh yeah, dude, like you if you did like three or four more homework, she would have gotten right yeah. where you need to be. Like, yeah. Like a couple letter grades and that's the difference between thousands of dollars in scholarships. Like, yeah, sign me up for that. Mm -hmm. Of course that would motivate me a little bit more so. But um, yeah, I guess that's water under the bridge at this point. Debt sucked, even though it is the best kind of debt you can have. Originally, the thought was we were gonna live in apartments until the loans were paid off, but then we realized that you can still get approved for loans and not have insane interest rates if your only debt is student loan debt, yep. which it was, thankfully. Probably helped us a lot that Lauren graduated with barely any student loans to pay off because she's got a big brain. She was also in state. Really, really hoping, and I cannot emphasize this enough, I need, we need a future child down the road um, to get her brain and not mine. That's for scholarship reasons alone. Life will just be a lot easier for that child if they can get Lauren's brain. But hey, if there was a but scholarship I, for knowing like yards per carry for Georgia running backs, buddy, come on. Yeah, sure, we can figure that out. We, <laughs> we, we wanna be able to, to sit here and break down what a coach meant and if that if dissecting a press conference can result in a scholarship, sure. I don't think times are gonna change that much in the next couple of decades, but you never know. We'll wait and see. College football is taking over the world, never ruled out. Mm. It was brutal to pay off those debt, those, those student loans though. It, it absolutely was. And I love my experience in Indiana. I would not be doing what I'm doing, talking to you people right now without having gone to Indiana and deciding that that was worth it would have also never met Lauren, mm -hmm. pretty big part of this whole thing. But there were definitely a lot of times in which I thought to myself early in my career, I have so much debt and I picked a career that doesn't pay well. <laughs> and I'm not alone, I know I'm not alone. And I remember how fired up I was to look at my taxes and see that I was finally in the $30,000 club with my pre-tax earnings. Like, that's the type of stuff that we're talking about. You're not coming out of college with a journalism degree and getting 50 grand out of, out of the jump. Like you're just not doing that, yeah. it doesn't happen. And if you are doing that, consider yourself very lucky and those jobs are few and far between. It's just, it's way different than going to med school or being a lawyer and having way crazier debt, but also getting paid well to be able to kind of cover that out of school. And that's why, so many people with journalism degrees venture outside of the field because even if you don't have student loans, you quickly realize how humbling it is to have a job in a random town working odd hours while your friends are making more money than you with relatively normal hours in a place where they want to be. Again, not saying I didn't want to be in Nebraska. Wow, Nebraska was a very Nebraska lovely place. place. I'm gonna bang the table right now. No, no, no. <laughs> Nebraska was a lovely place. Met some great people there, but ideally, yeah, I wouldn't have been a 10 hour drive away from where I grew up and all those different things. Will, can you sort of echo that sentiment of being in that spot post-college where you know you went to full sale here in Orlando mm -hmm. but student loans being able to to be to be in a career where you feel like you could pay them off and aggressively pay them off were you in that spot where you were able to do that or did you kind of look up and be like oh crap this is uh this is not going to be easy and I have not exactly picked a career that's mm -hmm. going to be able to to pay that off in a hurry 
Yeah, so um, I don't know if I've ever like directly told that story in here, but I was almost like a signing day flip for my college situation. Um, my you had the hats on the table. Almost, man. I uh, had a just stupid high ACT score, pretty low GPA for someone who was going to college, and so I was basically I thought I was going to LSU, and I had talked to them and everything, uh, and then I talked to the people at Full Sail, and they obviously like kind of look at where they think you're gonna go as a career base, and so they were like prepared to give me like way more scholarship money. They were just like, hey man, like we know what you've done like with your journalism program. And I sent them like a reel basically. So they were like, okay, yeah, like, you know, here's the situation we're gonna be able to put you in. Like I said, it was it was basically a signing day flip looking at it because with LSU it was like, oh, like we're gonna have to almost like work with our ambitions people. Like they made it seem like, and again, my fault for not taking school seriously, not their fault, but point being like, it, it seemed like I was just kind of more valued. So that was one of the things like they were like, hey, we're a for private school. We can give you whatever we want. There's no like rules. So they were like, hey, like, Oh, that's nice. Yeah, they were like, hey, like we can throw you this because like we want you based on your experience to come like help us like start this program. Da, da, da. So I went. I was. I think wanted to say like the fourth sports marketing and media career, like like graduating class. So they do they do semesters. So everybody like so by the time I got there, like the first class was graduating. You know what I'm saying? So that was like something I got kind of lucky in is that they picked me up pretty early. I talked to them, got like recruited in a way. So my college debt coming up really wasn't that bad. It was like five or six K and I kind of like farted around, didn't play, pay that loss while I was working at SDS, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of did the whole like minimum thing. Uh, and then, yeah, like I'm honestly on pace now to be about like where you're at in life. You know what I'm saying? I'm not there yet, but I think by the time I'm your age, I will be there. I was one of those dudes, like I said, that I got out like working for SDS, you know what I'm saying? It was my first job. So didn't really have the resources. Then I got here and I was like, ah, this is like, I don't have to struggle anymore. So I went to a lot of LSU yeah, you games. Pivoted. Yeah. You pivoted career-wise yeah, exactly. to be able to, yeah. But, yeah. but for, I mean, I got here in 18, you know what I'm saying? So it was like 18, 19, I was like, I'm going to LSU games, I'm going to Saints games, I'm not worried about this. But I was like, you know, the pandemic and stuff has happened. I'm just like, okay, like, let me lock in, like stop, like get the spending under control. Right. So long story short, we're in the same boat. We just took a wild a river raft to get there in different directions. So are you, are you still paying off student loans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and you're, yeah, the the plan is for the next for the next few years to be able to, like, by the time you're in your early thirties, you'll have those paid off. Right? Yeah, and that's one of those things that it's like I this might not even be accurate, but I was told that it helps your credit score to like keep keep one of those things coming out of your um out of your bank account. So I was just like, you know what, like I'm just gonna like keep it going, and then like I think once I kind of like <laughs> like I said, I, I, yeah, I think it's probably gonna be in the next like year or two. It's not like far off, but I've just started kind of prioritizing in the last like couple years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I think that there's a discussion about about student loans that I, I think part of it is: Do you feel like it was worth it? Do you feel like you mm -hmm. got your money's worth, or is it this situation which you kind of look back and you're like, "Man, this was the biggest financial mistake of my life so far." Was going to this college, not using this degree, and now I'm saddled with all this debt. And I'm still trying to be able to, to plan what my what my life is going to look like, and I've got this cloud hanging over me. So mm -hmm. that's I wanted to ask the Facebook group: One, do you have student loans? Uh, if so, how brutal are they? Two, do you regret them, or were they worth it? Three, how long did it take you to pay them off? And then four, what was that last payment like? Because I celebrated pretty hard the other day. <laughs> um, no, I our, our celebration consisted of me messing up. Um, messing up a, a pizza on our, our uni pizza oven that we got. Wow, just really difficult animal. when you get all the t 
yeah, you get all the toppings involved and sometimes it's like, oh man, it's the dough is not cooked through the way that it's supposed to. It's a tricky thing. We're still figuring it out. I, I will say this too really quick. Like a lot of people that like went to state schools and stuff, um, like you are pretty early paying those off. Like I know a lot of people in my age group still have a ton more than what you got going on. So you should be really proud of yourself, dude. Like whenever you explained it to me, you were like, oh, like, you know, I'm still, it's like, not really, bro. That's just kind of our generation. Like not, I'm talking about not 35, 36, 37. I'm talking about like, like younger millennials. Everybody yeah. just kind of has it. Like it's just, it's not that big of a deal because like, you know, we talked about it off air, but it's like things just started ramping up. And so it's like, yeah, great, great yes. job, man. Seriously. like. Well, thank you. And look, I, the more I've kind of read about this too, the high tuition costs, it has frustrated me. And if you listened to, to the pod the other day, we talked about HOAs and, mm -hmm. and those fees in figuring out. And I think that there are some similar vibes to those two things, because in many cases, the costs are continuing to rise without your input. And it was never supposed to be like that. I was listening to this expert that Ryan Rossillo had on his podcast, and he talked extensively about how student loans were supposed to be protected by the government, but then they essentially became like a free market deal that had legitimate financial incentive to powerful people, politicians got involved, and if they continued to, if, if, if they continue to stay where they were, then the people in place weren't going to benefit from them in that same sort of monetary sense, which when those started to rise back in the 1980s, like that changed the game entirely. And that's why so many of parents, our parents from our parents' generation, like are just from that that whole time frame. If you went to college before, you know, 1982 or whatever it was, like they didn't have to deal with the same sort of garbage that we did. And I would have loved to have gone to college when it was $1,856 a year for tuition, which was the average of public schools according to visualcapitalist.com. I may or may not have looked that up because I was angry about it. Right. What was once something that had significant government funding has now instead been like, oh, hey, we're gonna put all this pressure on students to cover these massive upgrades at schools and they can keep adding more classes because they get these high-priced tenure professors to teach them. Gus and so they justify the, the beach spending. in Florida because of you. Just kidding, exactly. I know it's boosters. Don't well, correct look, me, Connor. <laughs> Will, you should know as, as well as anyone, Orlando is still about yeah, 45, 50 minutes away from a solid beach that you feel you know, like you can really enjoy and, and, and you know, not necessarily feel like you're just going to a water park or something like that. So, you know, take that for what it is. I bet but, Gus has a monorail from his house just straight to the beach. I mean, he's built that into his UCF contract. He might, he might. They hooked him up, man. Gus is, Gus is living large down here. So yeah, I mean, some would say that's pretty much like what HOAs do. They continue to justify the spending. And if you look at big time college athletic departments, you would say, well, they haven't increased their profits. Why haven't they increased their profits? Because even though they continue to generate more and more revenue, they just spend more. And that's just mm -hmm. the way that you can avoid it. And that's why you can continue to do these things because there's nobody really looking out for people who continue to have to pay that money. But like, I think with the, the difference that I have between HOAs and, and, um, and student loans is just having the input. Right. <laughs> You're not having input on a big time university. And if you can find a four year university that doesn't subscribe to all those crazy things with the spending and, 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 and the way that they've ramped up all their buildings on camps, all that stuff, like more power to you, that's great. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of us who do go to try and go to four year universities, this is a, a really, really difficult thing. Like I, I was curious about this. So I had to look up some numbers. You know, I had to look up some numbers. I promise 
we're gonna get to the Facebook group in a, in a second here. But CNBC reported in 2012, which was, that was the year that I graduated, average student debt at a public university was $25,550, which I was a little bit north of that. Mm -hmm. Educationdata.org said average student loan debt for all students back in 1980, so including private schools, that was still only $3,900. And it was a thousand dollars back in 1975. Man, I say that I'm not trying to come across here as like the millennial who complains. No, but these are the people that call us lazy, bro. Like just being being real with you. You factor in, you know, even inflation factor, whatever you want, global warming, whatever you want to do. That's not fair. <laughs> there are some who are lazy. There are some who are lazy. To be fair, but there are also some people who are just not willing to truly understand how hard it is for this generation to save when they're in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And while some people might actually have spending issues and some people might just be lazy and they kind of suck and they don't really want to do anything and add anything worthy to the world, there are people out there, of course. There are also people like that in every generation. Yep. Um, I think we can all agree that the game has changed in a major way in the last few decades as it relates to student loans. Okay, Facebook group. Had a lot of people respond and no two situations are exactly the same. So I'm not gonna try and pretend that I'm, um, that I'm going through what, what certain people are financially. So I, I just wanna make sure that that is known and I'm not trying to talk down on anybody's situation while, while discussing this stuff. Uh, Lauren Jefford says, uh, no loans. Georgia has the Hope Scholarship and if you maintain a certain GPA, they pay your tuition. I have heard of other programs like these I am currently involved with an organization, uh, Horizon Scholars in Florida through Valencia College, and that's basically the deal. And if you, they have a long waiting list of kids that would love to be a part of this, and it's supposed to be kind of for like, hey, if you're maybe, you know, they're not giving the one percenters of the world this opportunity, right? Like mm -hmm. they're 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 digging into your financial background and making like figuring out, all right, maybe you're. Um, a child of divorce or something like that. You had a little bit of a rougher upbringing, and that's those. And you actually have to take school seriously if you're sitting there with a 1.7 GPA. You're not getting into this program. Right. But it is kind of cool to see stuff like that. And having been involved in it for the, I guess, the last year plus now, it is kind of. It does make me feel like there's a little bit of hope, and hopefully we we can see more of these programs because I get things cost money. But man, having your tuition covered to go to an in-state school, even if it's just for two years, that makes a world of difference. Such a big difference. Have you, you've, you've dealt with stuff like this in the past, haven't you? We, I, think, I feel like we were just talking about something like this hmm. a couple weeks ago. Or was it, like Brittany wasn't in a situation like that, was she? Oh yeah, she got her debt canceled. Uh, because That's what it was. Yes, yes, so just quick, quick story. Uh, my girlfriend went to law school for a semester and basically she got a like a letter in the mail that said the law school had shut down and so they canceled her debt. Like the government canceled her debt. I was like, unreal. that is the most insane, like get hit by a school bus type of situation. I was like, wow, because the school was like crummy and that's why she ended up just not continuing there because she was like, this place sucks. And I was like, yeah, like no one's gonna believe that because it's like a law school. But no, they got shut down the government believes that her debt got forgiven, all her records got wiped. I was like, ah, okay, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, Caleb Tillman also has a, a similar story about uh, the Georgia Hope Scholarship. Well, similar but different. Uh, Caleb says, still paying off my student loan since I didn't maintain a high enough GPA to keep Georgia's Hope Scholarship. Luckily, uh, GCSU isn't that expensive, just ask Marler. Uh, <laughs> yes, 
Marler hoping to get added to the Wikipedia page in some time. Uh, however, I'm no longer in the field I majored in and that does make me regret it. I love IT and I love the stable hours and vacation time that I never get in the sports journalism field. So I don't regret the career change, just the money that feels like it's gone down the drain toward these loans. Preach, hmm. 100%, like 100%. There is such a, such a low guarantee of, of, of finding exactly what you're looking for in your major, whether, and it doesn't just have to be sports journalism, but feeling like, oh man, this, this was everything I could have hoped for and I'm moving on, advancing in my career and I feel like I, I spent my money wisely. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta think that number, that number is not as high as, as one would think. Especially now, like what's the average amount of kids who change their major in college, like three times? Yep. Going through sports journalism, there's, there's a weeding out process that I, I know I've brought up on this podcast before, but where you're in that random town covering high school soccer and it's 35 degrees out and you have to drive 50 minutes back to the news desk to work until one in the morning and you're getting paid, you know, fraction right. of what your friends are probably getting paid and you wonder to yourself like, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe this isn't it. And sometimes you realize that, hey, just cause I majored in it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to continue to pursue this. And sometimes just having a college degree is worth it. But it does feel like there are just so many of those cases. And I, I have friends who are dealing with it too. Um, who think that they're going to do this for the rest of their life. And then pretty quickly afterwards, you just kind of come to that realization. No, it's not going to line up that way. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. And you're, you might be better off for it. You might, I'm not even like, you probably made the right decision by switching out of that. You have to absolutely have this, this passion and be willing to look past the financial shortcomings if you're in a field like that, not necessarily just sports journalism, but there are a lot of fields like that, which you can go to college for it and kind of wake up and realize, wow, I need to be able to pivot and figure out some things here. Well, the thing that's crazy about that too is like, I mean, so first off, I mean, I don't think you should really have any regret because you know what I'm saying? You got a college degree and ultimately all degrees are kind of the same. Like if you're, yeah. unless you're doing something specialized, unless you're doing like you doctor, like that type of thing. And so at the end of the day, like it's probably like in his situation, it's probably good that you have a degree and didn't go that way because once you start to get, especially in the upper management, they, they look for that for sure. And like, I know in my situation, like almost everybody in my department has a UGA degree. And I obviously got hired and I was just like, aha, I went to trade school. I bamboozled you. But like, <laughs> you're college. Man, trade school? Yeah. Oh, buddy. Like, Let me tell you, like there, there is something to be gained from being able to, to understand that, that that could be like a really lucrative path early on. Yep. I, I have, there, there have been a lot of moments in which I've been jealous of people that can go to trade school and get six figures for it mm-hmm. and not have to be strapped with that student loan debt and kind of look up and be like, yeah, you know, I, I'm able to save easily in this and I have such a specialized skill. I don't have to worry about getting laid off in the same sort of way. Like there, there are great, great benefits on that side. Yeah. So like, and like, that was kind of the math I did, but point being like, it's, it's good that you got like a standard degree because as you know, like I said, as you go in your career, people start to look at that and look at your like four year degree and it starts to kind of separate itself. Like I'll say it, it's one thing that that's why I've always 
had 10 things going for me because I'm like, you know, there, there are luxuries to that because I've always felt like, oh, well, maybe if I had a four-year degree, you know what I'm saying, people would look at me a little bit differently and think I was a little bit more qualified. So I feel like I have to work harder to make up for that. And maybe I'm just making that up. But I, I do think that's a very, especially something like sports journalism where it's like, oh, you've proven that you can write on deadline. You prim- you've proven that you can be yeah. punctual. Like there are lots of those skills translate to other jobs. I, I think that that can be a really good asset. No, that's true. That's true. And you're right. I don't mean to minimize the importance of a degree, but yeah, yeah there, are, there are definitely skills that, that going, to, going to a four-year school, going to a two-year school, going to whatever school can, can benefit you down the road, no matter what that debt looks like. Drew Page says, no loans, thankfully. I got super, super lucky because I only used my degree I got for a month. Um, my wife didn't get so lucky, though. Up until like a month ago, she still had about $11,000 to pay until... All her loans got canceled because the lender was scamming and preying on students. One of the happiest days I've ever seen her have. Somebody exactly else, let's go! <laughs> let's get these lenders, bro. Let's just unionize, bro, I'm telling you. I'll tell you what, I don't know how that, how, like what that breakdown was in terms of the money that you were paying, but you start doing some math real quick real quick and you think, okay, where can we use this money here? Right. Maybe we need to splurge a little bit here. Maybe we should buy a new car. In other words, we're not gonna be spending this money or down payment on a house even if you, you start to think about those things. Like your mind could go to a lot of different places if you're told you're not paying this $11,000. Yep, big I mean, think about that. <laughs> that's an incredible, that's a great day. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that was an awesome day for you and your wife, Drew. That, that is tremendous. That's pop a bottle, you know, that's, that's a little. <laughs> also, Drew, professional vampire, so. He's a, a phlebotomist, so <laughs> good for him. Uh, Aaron Michael, Aaron says, I made it my goal to pay off my loans within a year of graduating, and it was the best decision ever. Basically lived another year on a college budget and have lived debt-free for the last six years. Good on you. Mm-hmm. Dang. Um, I, if you could pay off your loans that quickly, great, awesome. The interest rates, probably for you are a little bit different than they were for me. <laughs> um, and that's, you always look at, oh, are you paying this off towards the principal? Or are you taking on, what sort of interest are you taking on with your plan? If you're, if you're paying it off within the year, and I had, I had a friend who, who decided, cause she was, she was making good enough money to be able to do this. She's like, yeah, I'm just gonna pay like $3,000 a month. I'm like, what? Your friend's the president, that's cool. <laughs> She's like, She's like, yeah, I'm living at home. Mm-hmm. I am saving for a house. By the way, she has a house. If you're looking in the Chicagoland area for apartment in a cool, pretty cool area, let her know. Let me know. Get you in touch. But was able to aggressively spend to pay off her student loans and was so grateful that she did it. And I was very, very jealous. Um, if you're paying it off within a year, I'm guessing you either had a, a very well-paying job out of out of school that didn't force you into significant debt, like going to extra school or something like that. Or maybe you're just really good with your money. <laughs> maybe that's what this comes down to and you were just able to live within your means and, and, and prioritize that in a big way. But good on you, Aaron. All right, um, Chris Zahor, Chris says, left school $22,000 in debt. I've paid about $5,000 and I'm still some Somehow over $20,000 in debt, my monthly reminder that I am not using my sports journalism degree. Payments would be a little bit easier to swallow if I was, but I do think having a degree in general has provided some opportunities I otherwise wouldn't have had. If I were you, 
And I, I was in this position a few years ago where you think to yourself, how am I still paying this? Don't look at that number for a long time. Just don't. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't just look at your monthly payment. Look at, try and try and prioritize if you can, if you have the means to be able to, to maybe increase just a little bit. So then that kind of feels like a win. And then just don't look at that for a bit because it can be really depressing, frustrating. I almost invented a new word and said defrustrating. Yeah, that's that what that is. That journalism degree coming in right there, that defrustrating. Right, yeah. All these people with sports journalism degrees. I don't have a sports journalism degree. I have a journalism degree, but not sports journalism degree. Indiana did not offer that at the time. I have a sports degree, you don't. <laughs> that's very yeah. funny, actually. Which goes to show that college overall kind of a scam because I am not working in sports and you are, and I have a sports That's funny. You're the co-host of a uh, an emerging college football podcast, Will. Yes. Might I add. That's you true. You're working in sports. And I have worked in sports a lot. I'm not saying I didn't use it. It's just, yeah, like... Uh, that, that goes to show, like you said, it's just the person that you are when you're 18 is not the person that you often turn into. It's a pretty big theme here as far as student debt. And so it's kind of tough. Like you said, the people move around so much and that they're kind of saddled with those decisions. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like coming into a college as an athlete, man. It's like, you just never yes. know how it's going to go. Yeah. And if your coach leaves after a year, after a week, and all of a sudden they bring in this entirely new system and it's the air raid and you're looking around. <laughs> What did I just commit myself to? It's a good thing undergraduate transfer rules are a little bit different now. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go, we got a couple more here. Let's go to this one from Eli Truon. Eli says, no loans, just finished up my undergrad back in October, completely paid off school. Whew, dang man. Go buy yourself a house. I often think about how early I would have been able to buy a house had I not had student loans. Uh, one, of my, one of my good buddies, one of my groomsmen, was able to buy a house, I think at 24, I think he was 24 when he bought his first house and it was like way too big for him. And not like, not like in a way that it was like, oh my gosh, he's spending like $500,000 on a house or something like that. Yeah. He bought in one of those new, new build types of areas and was just like, hey, I'm just gonna do this because I don't have this student loan debt to deal with make good enough money as, as a teacher to be able to kind of afford this. And this is the right investment for me at this time. If you can kind of be aggressive like that, um, that makes a lot of sense. And now not all investments are are good investments, obviously, especially with the housing market, mm -hmm. and this current market, buddy, good luck. Um, <laughs> actually, maybe I should take that back and say now it might not be the best time to buy. Uh, good time to sell, yeah, great time no, to sell. If you have a house, go ahead and build a house out back. Sell it for a couple hundred K and you'll be good to go, man. Yeah, there are real estate agents listening to this, maybe my brother included, saying, why would you say that? Stop it, stop it, stop it. No, buy and sell houses, do all those things. Uh, good for you, Eli, that's awesome, man. All right, let's end with this one from uh, Zach Woodhurst. Zach says, one year of college for around 10 grand of loans. Yeah, it wasn't worth it, but I should have uh, stuck to the education. Applying for part-time school puts them off though so there's that and my girlfriend just graduated recently so that's four years worth loans suck loans do suck and honestly if lauren had a brain like mine and we had to multiply our debt i honestly don't know what we would have done at times mm -hmm. that's just so much money to have to pay off so much money like if she was paying off debt similar to mine that's 800 900 bucks a month 
that you're paying with no investment potential whatsoever. You're not putting that into a house, you're not even putting that into rent, which some people would say isn't an investment at all. And yeah, like there are certain things to be said for that, but that's just so much. And I hope that you guys are able to, to kind of work your way through that and able to, to come out on the come out at the end of all of that, getting through college debt and being able to kind of do some different things financially and you're able to, to live kind of the life that you envisioned for yourself. Cause that's just, it's a lot. It is so, so much. I would love to go back to a time in which you could just have like, oh yeah, graduated from college, got like two grand worth of debt to pay. Yeah. Just tackle it in a year, just figure it out. And you know, I'm able to use my degree and move on, but times are different now. And uh, yeah, I don't think student loan debt is going away despite what's being said, not to get political or anything, but we're anti, listen, bold take, anti-paying money to people who don't deserve it. And that is, that is a student loan. Um, but I'll say, I'll say this real quick. Like it, it sounds like you're doing the thing and this, it, it, seem, it seems like it's happening more and more. One of my best friends is doing this where his girl like was in school, she's about to graduate, then he's about to go back to school. And like, that's always just a fun thing to do. It's great to like, you know, have a have a partner in that world. And like I said, like Brittany is gonna go back to law school soon. And so like, yeah, man, just props to you for, you know, getting through that situation. And you know, if you wanna go to part-time school, I think that's a good move. If not, you know what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with that either. So it, that's a cool thing, especially when you get in like couple dynamics and everything. Just like you said, everybody's situation is a little bit different. Just figure out what works for you and try to stay sane in the process. Mm -hmm. It's about the only thing you can say. Um, all right, wanted to mention one more awesome new initiative that we've got going. I talked about it on the pod to close the other day, but I uh, just cannot say enough good things about Blue Chip Grit. That is our new basketball newsletter that our guy Adam Spencer launched with the help of Dustin Schutte, Spencer Davis, Derek Peterson. I am telling you right now, if you have any interest whatsoever in college basketball, you want an easy way to do some bracket prep, this is a fantastic resource to be able to use. Our team will keep you up to date with all the big storylines. It is free, it just shows up in your email, just like the Saturday football newsletter. You can add in your favorite team, so you have your, your team news highlighted as well. All you have to do, go to bluechipgrit.com put in your name, your email address, your team, and boom, just like that, you have become a more informed College Hoops fan. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Join the Facebook group, hear your name Red On Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.